Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Okay, I'm super excited to kick us off by introducing one of my good friends, mentors, and heroes, Maui Asgadam, on this the inaugural episode of the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Maui shared some fantastic perspectives when it comes to speaking and writing, both with inspiration and clarity. So some specific takeaways you're going to get here are, one, uh, the surprisingly essential habits that even the very best speakers in the world follow. Two, how to obliterate some of those jitters or nerves if you're experiencing that uh, before speaking. And three, some real keys for maintaining the, the rhythm, interest, and engagement associated with your writing. So Maui has an impressive story. He is the founder and CEO of Maui Learning. But way before that, he was a refugee in Africa. So he has a pretty inspiring story for how he made the journey from there to going to the U.S. and going to Harvard, where he became the commencement speaker. He's garnered many accolades as speaker, author, and educational entrepreneur. Having published eight leadership books, he's spoken to over a million people at over a thousand schools and educator conferences worldwide. His online courses have world-class completion rates and have earned his firm the illustrious Cody Award in Education Technology. Oprah has called Maui one of her top 20 moments, and for me personally, Maui's friendship's definitely been one of my top 20 blessings. So without further ado, here is Maui Asgadam. Okay, and I am here present at the Maui Learning Worldwide Headquarters in Elmhurst with Maui himself. Thanks so much for being the inaugural guest here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here, Pete. I've been following your work, as you know, for, for a long time, and this is just a deep honor to be here. Oh, shucks. Well, I'm the one honored. You've been a huge mentor, and, and thank you, and we could praise each other for a half an hour, but that wouldn't be very fun. So, you know, we heard the bio. Tell us a little bit what's kind of like the the personal life, the interest, what's what's fresh and interesting for you these days. Well, you know, I have three kids and a wonderful wife named Erin, and um, my, my youngest is only 11 months old, and so he is fresh and interesting and awesome. I, I love hanging out with him, and, and actually, Pete, I'm going to throw this in there. This is bonus, Pete. I had a good friend who told me that you can make a choice. You can say, hey, my kids just, you know, they wear me out. They tire me out. Or you can look at it and say, these, they, these kids are gifts. I love every moment with them. And having that attitude has really been a, a lot of fun with these kids so far. Well, cool. And they're just adorable uh, hanging out. We were playing some of that, um, the Frozen game on Xbox, I That's remember. That's right. That's a good memory. That was pretty engaging. <laughs> pretty engaging. As well as the... The game everyone plays who uh, escapes me where you build stuff. What's it called? Oh, uh, Minecraft. Yeah, I should know that. Yeah, Minecraft. Minecraft. Yeah, Minecraft as well. So good times. They're, they're adorable and uh, it's cool. So you've got so much stuff to say. Uh, I want to maybe quickly hear. So you have an inspiring story. Many people have heard it. Many audiences. I ask you to maybe share it a bit more briefly, just so we can get a taste of where where you're coming from, and then we'll unpack a lot of stuff there associated with the the inspiration and the clarity that that comes through in your communications, which I think would be really valuable to hear. No, absolutely, Pete. And you know, I was just watching America the last uh, I think it was last month when the Powerball got up to 700 million. Everybody was going nuts. You know what I was thinking, Pete? I was thinking I already won the lottery just to come to this country hmm. because I used to live in a refugee camp in a small hut made of straw and mud in Sudan, had no hope, 
no chance that I'd get to go to college and have my own business and have this wonderful family like I just described to you. I probably would have been recruited into a rebel group uh, uh, in the Ethiopian Eritrean War. I'm from Ethiopia originally. And instead, I was resettled in, in, in Illinois when I was in first grade and learned English, had a whole brand new opportunity at life, right? Like I said, it's like winning the lottery. And my parents always taught me education is the way. Get educated, right? And uh, and had a lot of ups and downs, but eventually I was able to make my dream come true of going to college, graduate from Harvard University. One of my favorite memories is to see my mom her beaming face on graduation day. Yeah, and after that, I feel lucky enough. The U.S. isn't just a place where you can go to college. It's also a place where you can be a business professional and you can pursue your dreams in so many ways. And so deeply, deeply appreciative just of the opportunities I've had and uh, and excited to uh, to just share a few of the things that I've learned along the way. Oh, that's cool. And thank you. And and you can sometimes experience the, the hour-long or hour-and-a-half-long version like how many times would you say you've done a speech where you're kind of sharing your inspirational journey? Like hundreds? I mean, I've spoken to over 1,000 school districts, right, okay. around the country <laughs> in more than 40 states, places, places as far away as Taiwan, um, which they just invited me back last week. And so I've, I've shared it everywhere. And uh, it's, it's, you know, it's a lot of fun, but you also got to keep it fresh by adding yeah. lots of stuff, right? Otherwise, you know, you, you, can, you can get you know, tired of telling the same old story again and again. Absolutely. And so I kind of want to dig into this a little bit here and and talking about you've got some some pretty cool credentials on the speaking front. You you were the commencement speaker at Harvard, the 30,000 folks there and have done many other kind of big audiences there, as well as the writing front with your your book of Beatles and Angels that was about a quarter million, I think, sales. And they're doing another run soon, you mentioned. So great stuff. I'd love to maybe dig in a bit on, on each of these sides, the speaking side, as well as the writing side with the courses and such to get after, you know, what are some key takeaways in terms of like rules for success or how do you structure your communication so that it is inspiring, that it is clear that people connect with it? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, and, you know, I've always found it funny when they show those surveys where they say that people are more scared of, of public speaking than they are of death. Oh, yes, They survey yes. people. And I think for a lot of professionals, it brings them a lot of anxiety. Oh, I got to present in front of my boss or the board of directors or, um, you know, I used to work for a consulting company. We got to present in front of the client. You know, what if we don't do a good job, right? Or if I don't present well enough, I might not get that promotion. Or, you know, I, people people just get so nervous, right? You're being judged in front of others and all. It, it can and, and so, you know, I would love to share a few thoughts that can, you know, hopefully be helpful. Uh, to to oh, folks in that and, 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 and that and uh, share, um, I'll say you know one of the most helpful things I I, I learned was I remember I was speaking in Oklahoma. Uh, I was a young speaker. It was maybe my first year. I was like 22, 23. Had just graduated from college. And they asked me to share my story, right? So I got up there and I told the whole story. You know, I was a refugee, came over. I told every aspect of the aspect of the story. And the principal he did a, he did me a huge favor. It's when people give you feedback. Pete, I mean, mm. if you listen to that feedback, it can change your life, right? Instead of getting insulted by it, right? And he did me a favor. He said, hey, you know what, son? Love your story, but you got to remember something. Even if you've been asked to share your story, the speech is not about you. Oh, Even yeah. if you were in a refugee, it's always about the audience. So you got to frame it up and always ask yourself, how do I make this relevant to the audience? To me, that's the number one rule of communication, okay? Whether speaking or writing is, if you don't know what audience you're speaking for or what audience you're writing for, then uh, you know, you're know you in big trouble. In fact, people ask me, hey, Maui, do you ever get nervous when you present? And I'm like, yeah, it's when I don't know who the audience is. If you were to tell me oh, yeah. there's a group of people in the next room 
and oh. you don't know who they are, and you don't get to see who they are, and you just got to speak. I got to tell you, man, I don't know what I'm doing. And so the first thing I would advise to anybody is when they've been asked by a boss or a coworker or even uh, maybe it's a, it's a synagogue or a church or a mosque and they have to present something, you want to step back and you just want to think, okay, who's my audience? What are their challenges? What do they worry about? What keeps them up at night? What a lot of professional speakers do, uh, which I'm sure, Pete, you've done this in your, in your speaking career, uh, which I know you've spoken all over the country, uh, is they actually send out questionnaires right. where it's very detailed. And I always know the demographics, the pain points, all that kind of stuff. Now, um, and people, I even go as far as having surveys that I send out ahead of time. Mm-hmm. This last conference I spoke at last week, to be able to have a PowerPoint slide where I, where I can tell them, hey, guys, I asked you guys what your top challenges were. And um, I have written anecdotal stuff, but I also have survey stuff where 38% of you said it was this. You know, 42% of you said it was dealing with conflict in this way. And guess what, guys? I'm going to share a lot of things, but you can bet halfway in my presentation, some part, there's going to be a major section addressing your top two pain points. We're going to take care of that for you. So I think um, there's nothing, in my opinion, more important than starting with your audience. Okay, that's fun. So I'm imagining sort of in a corporate environment that that sounds fundamental. Yes, know your audience. I guess I'm wondering, in practice, what are some ways people fail to do this, like in a work environment? Sure. So I'll give you an example. So let's say you're um, you're presenting to uh, to 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 some clients um, that are coming in, right? You're working with some folks from from Texas or something, right? And uh, and, yeah, right. And 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 and, and let's say that you know they they just came from a town um, that has been having a lot of hardship with with the downturn in in oil or something like that, right? And um, having thought about that a little bit ahead of time, having thought through some of those repercussions, um, making sure that you've taken that into consideration for any things you're gonna be talking about, that's an important thing. That's a big deal right now in Texas, right? And so if you, if you, and we're talking in, 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 fe- in uh, right now in, in, in February 2016, right? Oil's like 30 bucks a gallon, right? Thinking thoughtfully where, and, and really what I want people to think about what, where, what it does for you, Pete, is it, it, instead of the pressure being on you, like what am I gonna say that's so brilliant? Your focus is now on what can I do for them, yeah. and that's what frees up your genius. Where when you're looking at it as what do I have to do to look awesome, the stress goes up, anxiety goes up, and you can't even get to the point where you're creative and flowing. So, so, so that's, that's really where, where that insight is. It, it directs your energy and your, your creativity in a much more powerful way, right? And that, that makes sense. Like, it sounds like the word self-conscious is like I am conscious of myself, and then that's kind of freaking me out. And so I guess I'm also thinking about in practice, you can see this a little bit in terms of just the slides people choose to use. Mm-hmm. Like the slides are for them. It's like mm-hmm. this is my outline because I don't know what's coming next as opposed to this is something that will serve you as a handy visual reference. Yeah, and I'll give you another, and I'll give you another example of that. Um, there's a client I have. It's my biggest client. When I speak to their board of directors, I know what kind of people they are. They are they have low attention span. They don't like to read a lot of stuff. The font, I have a rule, doesn't go less than 40. Four zero. Four zero. Like All that right. means I have like six <laughs> words a slide. When I'm doing a workshop to that same client with a different group, I might have like three or four bullets with font of twenty four because I know what the attention span of that group is. I've thought it through. Uh, and so again, like like knowing your audience, knowing what they're, how they process things, the kind of decisions decisions they're used to making, the kind of presentations they're used to getting is very important, right? Um, I often preview. My, my, my slide deck against my top champion for that meeting. So I would preview it. For example, I'm working with the curriculum department there. I'd preview it with the head of department. He'd get back to me and say, you know, you want to change the font size. You want to do that. So that 
again, you have to work with whoever's inviting you to go present to help you understand what's going on and get their feedback, right? Oh, absolutely. A baby did that often. We called it pre-wiring because we had to have a jargony term for everything. And, and it made all the difference. It was just kind of, it just flowed. It's amazing how big decisions could just get made because it was almost a formality. The, the main players had seen it in advance and, and it went. So, so, okay, very cool. So, audience is number one, primary, fundamental. Any other, you know, critical rules there? Well, you know, I heard something once from just one of the top speakers that I think a lot of people would say the last 50 years spoke to a lot of corporations as well. His name was Zig Ziglar. Oh, right. Um, and Goals. Go, that's right, re- man. I listened to that with my dad. That's right. Uh-huh. He had that Southern uh-huh. twang, right? Uh-huh. He had that <laughs> lockdown on that market, right? And, you know, he said something. I, I, was, I was at a conference one time in Hawaii and had the pleasure of hearing him speak. And he said something which kind of blew me away. He said that um, at this point in his career, and he was in his 60s when he shared this, at 60s or 70s, t- Twilight, he said, he figured out that speeches always went much, much, much better when he rehearsed them day of, even if he had already mm. given the same speech 1,000 times. No kidding. And I, so I thought to myself, if Zig Ziglar, the top mm-hmm. of the top of the industry, who makes millions of dollars doing this, who has all these stories that seem to come out of nowhere, if he's saying, guys, it ain't natural for me, if he rehearses every time, I do the same thing. If I have a speech at 7 a.m., I wake up at 5 a.m., Pete, the head does not shave itself. Okay. <laughs> okay? I shave the head. I shave the stuff. I get all pretty. I already have my deck. I rehearse the whole thing, even if I've already given a presentation before. Like though, it's like it's like the extra little magic that you get. You get that from rehearsing. Mm-hmm. That's what separates the excellent from the incredible presentation. The good from the excellent is that you took the time to actually rehearse that and think about be there in that day and time. A lot of people get lazy. They say, "Well." It's just going to be too much work. I can just roll through it. Well, I won't be, it'll be too rehearsed and polished. No, no, it won't be too rehearsed and polished. You'll just be more comfortable, okay? Right. You'll be more relaxed, and you're going to have a much better connection. And by the way, one other rule I have is things always go wrong in presentations. The mic doesn't work. The other day, I was doing a presentation, um, and the PowerPoint uh, system they had wasn't working. If well, now have, the computers update themselves without your permission. I'm, I'm telling like, you, right? Like the, in, the robots are taking over. <laughs> I'm telling you, man. It's crazy, right? Yeah. And so if you've rehearsed at a time, you can just go to the next room, just say, hey, guys, I just need five minutes, get out a sheet of paper, re-outline it without the slides, and do your job, right? Yeah. Like under no circumstance, by the way, is it okay to say, well, my PowerPoint's not working, so I guess that gives me excuse to do a bad job. No. If you want to think like a professional – as a professional, under all circumstance, you bring your A game. You don't give yourself any room to make excuses. You out there, you present, you hit a home run, and rehearsing is a core part of that. I rehearse all the time. Last week, I had one of my biggest keynotes of the year, um, and I lost my voice at the end of the day. It's probably because I was emceeing at night as well, but earlier, I had rehearsed the entire presentation, right? And, and everybody said, wow. One person came up to me afterwards and said, Maui, man, you spoke for 50 minutes. How do you remember all that stuff? Mm. I told him, you know what? I put about 40 hours into that. Yeah. Okay, I put, like th- I put a lot of energy and time. If you have a really important presentation coming up where you have to do well, do not skip the step that even Zig Ziglar did not skip. Okay, You got to rehearse. Take it seriously. It's effort and work. Okay, I'm convinced. I'm convinced. I've seen that in my own speeches. It seems like there's there's more little uhs, ums, little vocal mm-hmm. pauses slip in if I rehearsed even the day before as compared to the day of. And uh, I'm always balancing, like, should how early should I wake up? <laughs> yep. <laughs> and will I be less energized? And is there yeah. a downside to that? So I hear that, this prep the morning of, 
excellence. Any other key rules? Yeah, I would say there's some other other tips out there. I would say what I said earlier, which is expect things to go wrong. It's that if you're giving a speech and someone falls asleep, if you're giving a presentation and the CEO who who makes the decision stops paying attention, if you're giving a speech and the power goes out and and your slides go out, again, you're the natural thing to do is to panic and to think, "Oh, like like basically crap, like what the hell is going on? I don't know what to do." Um and and also that voice in your head that makes excuses, like, "Oh, well, I don't I, I it's okay for this not to work out." No, what separates the amateurs from the pros is they go into it and they say, under all circumstances, I'm going to do a good job. So I'm going to get – and if things go wrong, I expect them to go wrong. Like like if someone's – I've had fights break out in my presentations before, and you can use that as a teachable moment if you're is ready it for it. high schools or corporate environments? Um, well, in both, quite <laughs> frankly, okay? And, and you can use that as a teachable moment, uh-huh. okay? You can use that – you can say, hey, you know what? There's some factions here, okay? Let me teach mm. you a teaming method that will reveal that and we'll show you what's going on here. You got to be ready for everything. And really, people think that people expect the world to be fair to them and everything to work out. It's it's not a fair world, okay? Like things go wrong all the time and what makes it fair is your response and the professional response is, I'm going to use this somehow or some way to still get the job done. Okay, I like it. Very good. And any, any more on the speaking side or should we shift gears to the writing side? I think there's a lot more I can share on the speaking, but I would love to get over into, into the writing and share some stuff there. All right, very good. So, so your, your book of Beatles and Angels was a huge smash success. Mm-hmm. Sold a lot of things, so copies, so that's cool. <laughs> and you've got a, another run coming here. And I'm currently ogling, or is it ogling? Admiring. I'm looking at your Cody <laughs> Award. <laughs> your, your Cody Award for your, your leadership course that you've got going. And so you've, you've won an award for this online leadership course, which involves lots of writing. And whenever I'm chatting with you, like, oh, hey, what's going on? How are you doing? It seems like there's a lot of editing that, yeah. you, that you've got going on. So I'd love to visit a couple of these points. You said to me once that um, even though you did history and English at Harvard, you learned more about writing a sentence much later than you did at that time in college, despite all the papers you were writing, despite all the brilliant knowledge that they were pouring into your noggin. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, um, writing, sometimes I call writing, I refer to it as guerrilla warfare. You know, you get oh. stabbed more often than not, right? And you know, that's, <laughs> that's, that's saying a lot for someone who's a refugee who fled guerrilla warfare, right? It's like- What do you mean by guerrilla warfare? It's that just when you think like you've seen everything and it's all good and out, out, uh, there's, I, I missed that, I missed it, there was not momentum uh, there's, there, I lost momentum with those extra three sentences. Up, um, I just had an extra seven prepositions I didn't need to have in that paragraph. Up, I lost, I wasn't engaging enough in this way. What I'm getting at is you have to, what kills you with guerrilla warfare is when you don't pay attention to details. Now you got okay. stabbed. You, if you want to nail writing, Life or death. I'm telling you. Well, hey, if you want to be good, that's how I look at it, All okay? Right. Um, you've got to look at the details. And uh, people get really lazy, with their, really lazy with their writing, and it really hurts them. And so I've written eight books now. Uh, each one has required a lot of editing. And kind of what really kind of helped me understand it was, you know, like you said, I graduated uh, from Harvard. I was a history major. My, you know, I, I won awards there for my writing as well. And I had, when I wrote of Beatles and Angels, I had an editor who had worked for the Seattle Times. Wow. And he was used to having an, his editor beat him up to fit everything to 160 words in a column. Mm. 
And so most of us don't have that experience. We have the opposite. Write a 20-page paper. Write an 18-page paper. Yeah. Write a 12. But really, what's harder, they say it's harder actually to give a five-minute speech than a 50-minute speech. Oh, wasn't there a and famous person like, I would have written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have the time. Exactly, right? That's a clip like that that's been you know, retold many times. Yeah. And, and same thing with, with writing. It's much easier to write you know, endless amounts of stuff that's not that good than to be crisp and good. Well, working with this guy, he looked at my book of Beatles and Angels, I've never seen so much red ink in my life. I mean, it was blood everywhere, right? Mm. Like, and, and warfare. yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, another tip I will give for anyone on writing is when someone gives you feedback, especially if you put your heart and soul into writing something you think is pretty good, you're gonna be, you're gonna be mad. You're gonna be like, "Are you joking me right now?" Mm. Pete Mikaitis wrote this brilliance. How are you gonna say mm. this about this? You know, yeah, it's um, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so you gotta, you, you gotta have, always take a day. Take some time and think about it. Um, don't judge it right away because usually people have some merit when they give us that feedback, but we want to judge it right away. That's one of the things I learned. But what, what this guy, Dave Berger, did for me was he really helped me understand a couple things. One of them was how to get rid of unnecessary words. This is also very important in PowerPoint. Like, like, there's a lot of PowerPoints that could be a lot better if you cut out all those extra mm-hmm. prepositions, all the unnecessary garbage. So, for example, one of the things I always, a simple thing that I learned that is a s- signal of the kind of thing that, that I now do regularly for all my writing is something simple like the phrase in order. Now we in all, order. In order. We all use the phrase in order a million times, right? Like, like, uh, and, and it seems like a harmless phrase, right? But if you're trying to fit six words onto a PowerPoint for the exec team, Okay, and 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 you you waste that. My basic argument is what I learned is you can pretty much always delete that word. Okay, so if you say so if you say uh, Pete is going to the going going to uh, to the restaurant in order to eat, you could just say Pete's going to a restaurant to eat. Um, my company is gonna uh, uh, work with your company in order to increase sales. No, we're gonna work with you to increase sales. All right, and that's that's what that's what like a, a lot of where I, I, I when I say wow, I'm really looking at someone who's a master writer. It's in their ability to delete unnecessary words, right? right. And getting good at that, right? Uh, so that, that's one of the things I look at. At this time, now. <laughs> ex- ex- exactly, right? You got any others? Any key phrases that need to go? Yeah, so I would say um, uh, so that. Okay. Um, uh, is, is you usually don't you need that, that. You can just say so. All right. Um, so instead of saying he, um, he, uh, uh, he proposed to his, you know, to his girlfriend so that he could marry her, <laughs> he proposed to his gr- girlfriend so he could marry her. Okay, like, like again, okay. Like, like it seems innocent, right? And to even those of us who went to schools like Harvard, it seems like, yeah, it's a perfectly fine sentence. When you get in with the folks who actually really understand the mechanics of sentences, they're able to distill it. And I challenge anyone on this podcast, it's actually pretty fun to do. Like, like when you're working on a PowerPoint or something like that to say, hey, how can I be as clear and concise as possible? Knowing that the more words I have, the more my central message might get lost, right? In our courses for students that we create, you will lose students if there's too much text on the page. So I'm always challenging my team. You know, first of all, how do we lead with engaging hooks that make people want to stick around? Okay. If we haven't engaged and hooked someone, it's over. Like, like you have to hook people. Then from there, can you boil your point down to a simple kind of pithy kind of like bam, there it is? Then flush it out and then quickly give the user some application points and end the lesson. Make it, so I compare that next to uh, a lesson that just kind of endlessly draws on and says this and that and that, hasn't hooked anybody, doesn't have good examples, doesn't have a key central point. And these are all fundamental elements of communication. Now, let's talk a little bit about in- engaging folks in the courses. Now, now, did you tell me that you had 
the highest completion rate in your course of, of all courses? Or it was it was a crazy stat. Was about the completion rate? There's a good? stat. So my partner, one of my biggest um, my biggest partners, is an organization called Florida Virtual School. Right. Last year they had over two hundred thousand students at their school, and we do all their leadership courses for them. So we have we have and, and there's over a hundred courses that they offer, and the courses are you know of every kind. It could be anthropology, biology, math, um, uh, different math courses, whatever it might be. Um, driver's Ed. Last year, out of all the courses um, that they offered that had more than 500 students in them, our, one of our courses had the highest completion rate, even beating out Driver's Ed. That means that more students oh, who started our course completed it. Very nice. And Driver's Ed is a very easy course. Trust me, I've and, seen that and course. And people want their driver's license. Uh, they they're motivated. Their, I mean, they're motivated, right? Yeah. But if you go into it with prioritization of engagement, saying that that's a key value, people don't prioritize it enough, Pete. They're just like, let me just convey this information, and people are just going to like it. No. How are you going to make it compelling for them? Tell us. How do you make it compelling for them? I mean, it goes back to what we talked about before partly, okay? Know your audience. Think of what stories and examples are really going to relate to them, right? Again, you're talking Mm -hmm. to those guys from Texas. Do you have an amazing story about um, something related to the oil industry that will really capture their attention if that's the industry you're in? Do you have – stories are fantastic. Like a lot of times with PowerPoints, we'll have – someone will have like 86 different texts and fonts and stuff up there. Mm -hmm. One powerful image. One powerful image. And just one word, you can talk about that for a few minutes and really Synergy. capture people, right? Synergy, <laughs> right? And then bam, right? Um, it's, it's amazing. I mean, uh, so that's one of the things I would say for sure. Well, can you tell us, you know, what makes a story engaging and amazing, rocking in terms of bringing that? Sure. So what I like a lot of times is, um, I'll give you an example, okay, of, of two stories. So Pete went to the restaurant, he ate, he came back home. Pretty mm, boring. Yeah. Pete went to the restaurant, he got robbed. He got beat up. They stole his money, and he couldn't remember which way home was. What's going to happen next? All right. What's the difference? There's some conflict in the second story. Oh, yeah. Like, like having some tension, tension, some conflict is critical for good stories. Without tension, it's boring automatically. That's right? right. Like any movie or literature. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and understanding what tension is appropriate. Like, hey, guys, last year, this division and our team lost 90% of sales, you know, had 90% um, decline in sales. And some folks are saying it's because of this, this, and this that happened specifically. You tell that story in there, you got their attention, okay? Um, You got to use the language that appeals to them, right? That's good. Okay, so stories, engaging, concise. Mm -hmm. What else? Yeah, I would say a lot of times people don't, people lose sight of, this is something I had to really learn over time. People don't lose sight of momentum. Just because you have one slide that's a good slide and the next slide is a good slide, understanding the rhythm that an audience is going to experience a deck in um, mm-hmm. or, or a presentation in is critical. Like knowing when you've made too many points in a row, knowing when you need to have that um, that checking in and saying, hey, guys, what did you think about this point? Uh, uh, was there any questions about this one? There's a lot of other groups when I've gotten here that asked this. Um, are there any really watching for momentum and what's happening is critical. Um, it's a it's a because a lot of times people will tell you, well, you know what? All these sentences are fantastic. All these paragraphs are great. But, you know, they lost the rhythm of, 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 of the writing. They lost the rhythm of the deck and they don't quite understand why it's not a good deck or why it's not a good piece of writing. And that's something that if you look for it, you will find it. Always check for the right momentum. So, okay, when you say rhythm and momentum, you're telling me one rhythm or momentum mistake would be if it's like I've got example, 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 but instead I should have, I should mix it up like like there's a joke or there's an image or or, or a story. What do you mean by? Yeah, so um, what I mean is that like you'll see this in writing a lot. 
someone will describe the hills for too long. Oh, okay, yes. like 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 someone yeah. will describe even conflict for too long. Someone yeah. like they were constantly getting beat up, and they didn't mm-hmm. realize the audience needs a respite That's here. Right. Um, uh, uh, and the same thing happens in the corporate world when you're presenting. Like understanding when um, you've made too many, you've shown too many examples of how sales went down. They don't uh-huh. need to see 150 examples of that, okay? Uh-huh. You kind of like have killed it, right? Uh-huh. You should have transitioned over to now. How can we lift sales back up? Okay, mm-hmm. you should transition. To, you should have had um, a moment for the audience to talk to the person next to them, and, where you say, "Hey, has this been true at your organization? If so, how?" Being able to space in when you present and when you write those those interactive moments um, for people to process and learn with each other critical, right? When you're doing a PowerPoint presentation, mm-hmm. being smart about that. I actually space those out. I write them in ahead of time. I I I plan if it's going to be a 45 minute presentation, mm-hmm. and I have my deck that I've written out. I know exactly the key engagement questions I'm going to ask, which slide I'm going to ask it at, whether they're going to talk to each other or only going to think about it in their own head. A good presenter has thought through all that ahead of time and has planned for it. And so uh, I don't know if there's any magic rule of thumb, but you said 45 minutes, you've got the engagement things planned. I mean, do you have a rule of thumb you're using? Like, hey, every 15 minutes or yeah. don't go longer than nine minutes or... Yeah, so this, this is something I've thought about a lot. I think for 45 minutes, you probably can't do... It depends on the group size, first of all. But let's say, for example, you have an audience and it's going to be, you know, more than just like a handful of people around a table, right? Like six mm-hmm. or seven, um, which there you're just having a conversation really, right? Like you've got to be more relaxed. Even if you're being formal, you've got to understand that you're having a conversation, right? When it's when it's like 50 people, 100 people, I don't think you want to do more than three or four of those in, in mm-hmm. 45 minutes. Because yeah. what can happen is if you do too many of them, it will take away from your presentation and what you're teaching and it will also force you to not give people enough time to talk with each other. So you have to cut people off too quickly because you yeah. want people to have a good 90 seconds, two minutes to actually talk at least. Or they're particularly if you're asking provocative questions that really matter, they're going to want to discuss with each other. Right. If you haven't asked provoca- provocative questions, then that's your fault. Shame on you. So two minutes is what it takes because you're so intense. Hey, you know what? <laughs> but the Concords couldn't resist. So, all right. We talked about hooks, engagement, conciseness, concision. Yeah, so that's right. anything else in, in the writing world that we got to capture? Yeah, I think also re- realizing your own limitations is critical. Like, um, I think I'm an above average writer. I get people to edit my stuff all the time. Like, like, like I get people to look at it all the time. And I learn so many key things from them. If you're here uh, at this podcast listening, um, understanding that we all need help with our writing and uh, and that um, uh, and it's not even that someone is a better or worse writer than you. It's that they see angles or things that seem off or something that can be offensive, right? Yeah. That you haven't recognized. Um, so if you have an important presentation, you don't want to go into it, okay? Uh, as the only person who's seen it, that's one of the biggest mistakes you can make, right? And uh, and it could hurt your career. I I will stand by that. I believe it will hurt your career if that's a habit that you have right now that you consistently are giving these presentations. You almost, if you need to, create a presentation buddy. You look at each other's mm-hmm. stuff and you give each other feedback and get a committee of folks to look at that. Because um, I know it can feel lonely. Sometimes people don't want to do it because they're ashamed. They don't want someone that's to true. review their stuff. I actually look forward to it. I love getting the feedback from people. The reason is it does two things for me. One, automatic rehearsal. Yeah. Okay. I have to have a completed product that I can share with you and go through it with you and explain it to you. So there's some rehearsal there. And then and then two, it makes you better. Who doesn't want to get better? That's good. I like it. Feedback is love, as they say, one of my favorite places. <laughs> Leadership. All right, well, so if if that's if we got all your 
greatest hits yes. off the top of your head for speaking and writing. Do we? For, um, I think, there are thousands of them, but you know, I, for I'd the say, limited time, I'd say, <laughs> I would say I would say actually the one thing I would I would say is a is something that's um, if you really want to take your your presenting to a whole new level, and and you're willing to go for it. Um, what I always relish the challenge of is when you have an audience of like 200, 300, 400 people, like having an activity where they all engage with each other that's a little bit creative. Like, like, like for example, where you say like, hey, uh, I'm going to ask you to meet somebody and, and I want you to act like this is the person you've always wanted to meet for, um, as long as you live, right? Uh-huh. And then you have like 10 people in the audience not do that. So the audience goes nuts. They meet each other. Then you have them think about, well, what about the people who weren't doing this activity? You know, this was a minute of their life, but, you know, what if this is their life at your workplace for a year, two years, five years? That's an empathy-building activity, right? And so to get activities like that right requires some long-term vision for your speaking that you're trying to build out some tools, engagement mm-hmm. things. Um, I, I think that's pretty tough to do. Come up with good activities that work for four or 500 people, 200 people, 100 people that aren't just like, talk to your neighbor about my last point. Um, was it, you know, how does it apply to you? Which there's a place for that. We already mm-hmm. talked about that. Yeah. But there's other engagement you can do to build energy in a room, right? And that, I, I would say, if you want to venture off into that, you, that means you're committing yourself to really pursue the understanding of speaking at the highest level. Well, oh, well now I'm, I'm intrigued. So if I'm thinking about sort of a smaller environment, you've got maybe eight people in the conference room and you want to bring some energy in, Any anything leap to mind? Like that's an effective yeah, boost? Yeah, I think um, what I would do, for example, if I had eight people uh, that I wanted, I, wanted to do, I wanted to do something would be I might say, hey, guys, let's have some fun. I'm going to give you an impossible scenario. Like, 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 I think this is pretty much impossible to solve. And you are going to work with your partner. I'm going to give you 90 seconds. And we're going to see how each person does on this. Um, and, uh, and then you're going to go around. And so something that's a little more interesting, a little, where it forces them to talk to somebody, where it connects to what you were going to talk about anyway. So, for example, going back to the oil example, here's an impossible situation. Um, you have a um, debt um, uh, that uh, is far higher. Um, your debt obligation is far higher than your revenues. Um, uh, and there's no way you can pay it back. Here's what you have. Let's all just think about what would you do to get out of this, right? And, mm-hmm. and let's talk about that. That's a real situation challenge right there, right? At the beginning that you could do just to – you could tell them, hey, this is to get your juices flowing, guys. That's let's good. think about this. Let's talk about this. Because guess what? In business, we sometimes have to solve impossible things, and we don't back down from that. Yeah. Now you got that energy there, right? Um, so I would say that's like a simple one off the top of my head. But what I'm saying is to really nail it for your audience, you have to put like 15, 20, 30 minutes of thought into it, run it by a person, right. experiment with it over time for your groups – no speaker can tell you exactly what that looks like for you. Mm-hmm. You have to develop that based on your own personality and the kind of audiences you speak to over time. All right. V- very good. Thank you. Well, so we're in our final moments here. Let's so I'd, do it. I'd like to transition to the fast faves Uh-oh. in which we <laughs> pull all the wisdom and cool discoveries that you have and try to share them with the rest of the world. So here we go. Tell me about a favorite truth bomb, something you say, and when you say it, people start nodding their heads, taking notes, retweeting. Yeah. Well, something, a lot of people have financial problems, and one of the things I always tell them is like, hey, everything is cheap until you multiply it by 12, okay? All right. And that's like all those recurring bills. You go out to pizza once a month, $40. Oh, that's not bad. Multiply it times 12, uh-huh. $480. It's on my Spotify. I'm telling yeah. you, that's, if you make $48,000, 1% of your money just went to pizza. But you didn't feel like you were spending any money, right? So everything is cheap. Tell everybody. Y'all look at your recurring expenses. <laughs> everything is cheap until you multiply it by 12. Go okay. ahead, Pete. All right. We can re- retweet that. Yes. <laughs> Tell me about a favorite book. 
Uh, what really lot, influenced you positively? A uh, lot of awesome books out there. Um, one of my favorite books uh, is a book uh, by Gary Keller, founder of Keller Williams. It's called The One Thing. There's a lot of business books out there that, quite frankly, I don't think are that helpful because they will mm-hmm. just repeat the exact same thing. Work hard. Yeah. Be nice. Smile. And the you first know? third of it is telling you why now. This is the most critical book you can buy. I'm telling you, right? So, <laughs> so you know, pe- people waste all this. And, and, and so it's rare when you find a good business book or an mm-hmm. amazing business podcast oh, that actually has <laughs> some interesting ideas or some, some things you can use, right? So is this book the one thing? It just it crystallizes some really amazing concepts, my favorite of which is that at any one point, there's one thing that any of us can do, just one thing that is the most important thing in whatever sphere of our life. So as a dad, there's one thing that I really should be focused on. And I should really be thinking about what that one thing is and executing it. As a leader of my company, there's one thing that if I do it, everything else becomes irrelevant or easier. What is that one thing and how do I make sure I execute on it? I love that focusing and all the other techniques he has in the book. I think it's wonderful. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. Uh, tell us about a favorite website or blog or podcast or internet resource that you find yourself turning to a lot. Yeah, so this is uh, kind of funny. Um, I'm a big, uh, I'm a big uh, uh, junkie for politics. Yeah. So you know, I I'm always it's body it's you RCP? know again we right we spoke we spoke about uh, guerrilla warfare earlier yeah. right <laughs> right so so I'm always I'm always jumping over to to just different political websites like seeing what's going on things like Politico you know things like um, Washington Post New York Times I, I read those all the time and it's like a it's just amazing and interesting to see the wide variety of views in our country. I'll go over to Fox News a lot, see what they read. I read all of them just to see how different people are thinking and how they're interpreting the same piece of news. I find it, I find, I find it fascinating. Well, thank you. How about a favorite uh, time-saving trick or tactic that you use? So my favorite tactic is when I can look at myself and I can say, I've gotten more done by 10 a.m. than most people have gotten done in the whole day. Um, so when you wake up. Yeah, like those days, those days when I'm up at 4.30 and I blaze till 10 and I'm just like, bam, I can just drop the mic at 10, okay? I'll drop it because I've rocked it so hard. I find that the world doesn't bother me as much. I don't have to respond to emails. I can think at a higher level. Getting some of that, so I'd say getting alone time in the morning for two, three, four hours, that's when you get the most done in my opinion. That's what, that's what I focus on a lot of times. All right. Tell us, you have a favorite uh, quote or motto? Yeah, so, piece you know, of inspiration. You yeah, return one thing to. that inspires me, you know, and I, I know a lot of people have heard of Helen Keller. You know, she's a super inspirational mm-hmm. woman who's you know deaf, blind, had so many challenges, and she said, "I, I will never consent to, to 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 crawl when I have the impulse to soar." Oh yeah. And yeah. for me to think about, because people look at me and they're like, "Oh Maui, you know, you live in a refugee camp. This happened to you. A lot of challenges." I'm describing this, and they're like. But when I look at people like Helen Keller and for her to say something like that, that just lights me up knowing that she wrote books when she was blind, knowing that she graduated from Harvard, right, as a female when, uh, in, in, 1918, in 1918 from Radcliffe, which would later go on to be part of Harvard, knowing that she was an activist for the causes she believed in when everybody else would assume she would accomplish nothing in her life as a deafblind person. So when you see people like that, I think it, it forces all of us to stop making excuses and to uh, not live a life where we're just um, not pushing up against our limits, right? And so um, I, love, I love that woman. I love her quote. Oh, that's good. Uh, favorite uh, study, an experiment or a piece of research that you find yourself thinking about often or referencing frequently? 
there's a lot of great studies in education right now. Um, one of my favorite research points is around the Altradian rhythm, which is basically the concept that, so a lot of Harvard classmates of mine, you know, uh, um, uh, a lot of type A personalities I know, they kind of do some chest thumping and they're like, yeah, I can work 24 hours straight. You All know, right. like I'm a beast. You know, you're mm-hmm. a Bane guy. You know what's up with uh-huh. this, right? People want to, and I saw this research that showed that it actually you work much better if you work for 90 minutes, 120 minutes, and then right around that time, you'll start to get a little bit tired. Mm-hmm. And if you get up and take a walk for 10 minutes or play a guitar for, 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 for a few minutes or go um, go step outside, it's so relevant to people in the corporate world mm-hmm. that you're actually not being productive if you are at the computer just staring, furiously typing away from 8 to 12. Your body's going to give you signals at around 9.45. You're not wasting time when huh. you get up for 10 minutes to walk around. And you're not supposed to be, by the way, working during that break. Free your mind. I love that research. I, I That's how I've written eight books. I take breaks um, uh, strategically. I build it in. Awesome. Thank you. Talk about maybe favorite tools, whether it's a gadget or technology or software or, or thinking framework that you find using yeah. often. I love, I, I can't live without... Um, Google, the Google system, like the it, I, I run my whole company Maps on it. Google Maps and like, the Google like, Forms, like, and like Google for all the business tools. Google Google Drive, Google Docs, um, uh, Google Calendar. It's all synced up. Um, I always uh, my speaking calendar. Everything's all synced up to my phone. Um, you know what's crazy, Pete? I think we don't even understand how good we have it. Yeah. When I started my when I started my speaking career, you know, in 1999, 2000, if people want to see me speak, you know what I had to do, Pete? It's gonna seem so ancient to you. I had demo tapes made for a few thousand dollars, and someone would call from New Jersey. I'd have to go to the, over to my bookshelf, get an envelope, put the demo in there, <laughs> write a letter, do all this stuff, ship it out. It costs money and time. I had to have staff member do that. We we now call that one page on a website. Yeah. Okay. Like, like we don't even realize how productive technology has made us. How it's how and 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 so I, I the just the internet and and the Google system, the things it allows us to do, um, has completely changed my life. Oh, that's fantastic! About a favorite habit that mm. you found game changing or helpful. Mm. You mentioned the early morning stuff. Yeah, I'd say I'd say the um, the early morning. Like I, one of the things I suffer from is insomnia, Pete. Instead of sitting in bed from three thirty to eight thirty, I'm just gonna get up at three thirty and blaze and work. All right, all right, and then and, and and get it done. And so that's a habit of mine that I, has helped me a lot the last five six years. Is I refuse to just sit in bed for six or seven hours. I'll just get up and I'll get a lot of stuff done. If I'm tired the next day, I'm tired, but at least I got my stuff done already. All right, and. Favorite way to find you if you want to learn more about you, what you're doing. Is it yeah. website or Twitter? What's your yeah, thing? Yeah, so, you know, MauiLearning.com, M-A-W-I, Learning.com. That's a great spot. I've started using Twitter a lot more now because um, mm-hmm. my team has made me, basically. Right. <laughs> They're like, um, and I'm, I'm, I am on Facebook. I'd say Maui Learning is a great place uh, to find me. We have a summer conference for folks who are interested in uh, education. People also can meet me in person there here in Chicago. You've been to that, Pete, and, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I know you've enjoyed that. Yeah, so that's uh, that's that. And, and favorite parting tip or thought or call to action? Yeah. You know, one thing I've thought about a lot, and I think folks in the corporate world will really be able to identify with this. I mean, I hope I'm not convincing you right now to quit your jobs and do something else, okay? That's not my intent. But I remember when I was given a graduation speech at Harvard, um, you know, it's a lot of pressure. It's 30,000 people that you're speaking to. It's graduation day. You don't have your notes. You have to speak from memory. And there's not a podium. It's just... Uh, a thin mic in the crowd. And 
the guy, they assign you a mentor to help you with that, um, who reviews your speaking. You have speaking training with him two or three times a week. Hmm. And um, by the way, one of the things he taught, this is a more minor point, was um, you got to hit the adjectives when you speak because adjectives describe. So instead of saying, wow, that's a beautiful car, you say, that's a beautiful car. <laughs> now all of a sudden it pops, right? Okay. So that's another little speaking go. tip for people, okay? Hit the adjective. Now, Hugh actually, the, the, the really sad thing about the situation, Pete, is that he actually had cancer. Mm. And he was the in charge of the entire writing program at Harvard, very well known in the community. And I got to work with him as he was at his deathbed. And, um, and by the end, I had to ride my bike to his house uh, because he couldn't get you know, his 15-minute bike ride to campus anymore. He was so sick. And he shared something with me that I'll never forget. He said, you know, um, as I look back at my life, um, you know, I've had a chance to do so many things. And, um, and he said that the thing that really um, meant the most to him was that at the end of the day, he did what he wanted to do. Mm. That it seems really simple, but he says, I didn't spend my life doing stuff I never wanted to do. Like, 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 and, and he says, that seems so important to me now, right? And yeah. um, that was pretty profound for me to hear that as I was, you know, leaving Harvard to, to hear this, this mentor who was, you know, dying of cancer and he died very shortly after my speech, talk about how important that was, right? And I would challenge all the folks on the podcast, like, really, you know, are you doing what you want to do? Like, are you doing some stuff you don't want to do? Like, like some stuff you had no business doing, right? Uh, well, what are you going to say when you're in Richard Marius' situation? Okay, later on. You're going to say, well, I spent my life doing stuff I never wanted to do or I didn't want to do, and now I'm at my deathbed. To me, that's, that's sad, right? So, uh, And by the way, I'm not saying do what I do or what Pete does because we're all different. Like, I have a lot of friends who love being in the corporate world. Who That's what they are meant to do. They enjoy it. They, they, they're at, they're, they're really, that speaks to them. Um, I have friends who are more like myself who float around a lot more um, uh, and, and like having running their own small business, that kind of thing. But I would challenge anybody here. Life is too precious. We live in too great a time and too great a country where we have these opportunities to, to do anything less than what we really want to do. Like, search your heart, figure out what that is, and find a way to do it. Oh, fantastic. Well, Maui, thanks so much for, for kicking us off in this inaugural episode of the How to Be All Spank Job podcast. It's always a good time hanging with you, hearing your smart thoughts. You can check out the follow-up stuff, the, the show notes, transcripts, uh, infographic, cheat sheet, some fun stuff, and links to all the goods at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep1. That's letters E-P, Arabic numeral one. Thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.